Um, I'm going to read leading into Isaiah 55. Um, You don't need to turn here. It's just a passage um, that I'm going to read to lead into the text. Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 46. At the end of Jesus' ministry, when he was talking about his suffering and the things that were about to uh, come from his raising from the dead that would uh, be seen in the book of Acts, he said to his disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So we've been looking at fundamental lessons uh, fairly consistently here for a couple months. And the theme of these lessons has been identifying God and identifying with God. And we looked at Luke 24 and this section as a particular basis of how the Bible as a whole God has put together these volumes of different writings to teach us about him, first of all. How do we identify and recognize who God is? But then the scripture also teaches us how do we identify with God? How do, we, how do we become unified with him and gain fellowship with him? And the primary emphasis of identifying with God continuously in scripture is the idea of repentance. So really the title of this lesson as we look at Isaiah 55 is Repentance Leading to Life. In the book of Acts, at one point, in one of the sermons that is in the book of Acts, it's in Acts 15. Um, Well, it's not one of the the sermons, I'm sorry, but in Acts 15, when they're discussing the issues between the Jewish people and the Gentiles and what the Gentiles need to do in order to serve God and be converted to God, um, when it's clarified that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, uh, they uh, end up saying that God has also granted them the repentance leading to life. So, Isaiah 55, um, one of the things that Jesus said in Luke 24 is that the scriptures prophesied that repentance for forgiveness of sins would begin in Jerusalem. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 10 also mentions that the prophets prophesied of the grace that would come to us. And Isaiah 55, I think, is one of these very vivid and picturesque scenes where God extends this new covenant timeless invitation before Jesus ever came into the world. Just some other things leading into Isaiah 55. Glenn read Isaiah 53 uh, before we partook of the Lord's Supper. If you look back at Isaiah 53, verse 10, uh, verse 10 through 12, just the conclusion of that chapter, there's a couple of phrases in Isaiah 53 that I think help emphasize the importance of the things that are said in Isaiah 55. So look back at Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities." Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So just a a couple things. Before this chapter, this idea of the servant is emphasized over and over again throughout Isaiah 40 through this chapter in Isaiah 53, And if you look at Isaiah 53, verse 11, he says, My servant will justify the many. That's the last time 
in Isaiah, that servant singular will be mentioned. Back in verse 10, he mentions that because of this offering, this guilt offering that his servant would render, he will see his offspring. From this point forward, what's emphasized more than this servant is the servants. So if you look at Isaiah 54, verse 17, it's the first time that this servant is seen not as a singular person, but now it's servants coming from this offering that the servant has made to God. Look at Isaiah 54, verse 17. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. So there is the first time in Isaiah that the servants, plural, is emphasized. And from this point forward, it's not just that there are new covenant things that are being emphasized, but specifically new covenant people are being pictured and emphasized. And Isaiah 55 is just a very beautiful, very picturesque scene of what, what kind of people new covenant people would be. And you kind of think about the importance of prophecies like this. In the book of Acts, when the New Testament scriptures weren't accumulated and completed yet, these were the kinds of things that Christians would have had to have understood their basis of identity, like what Jesus said in Luke 24 and like what Peter said in 1 Peter 1 verse 10. So Isaiah 55, we're just going to work through the text really simply. I don't have a PowerPoint for this morning, but again, this is a very vivid scene that's pictured here. And so just like if you were here on Wednesday when John Cain uh, reading Isaiah 6 mentioned like just kind of trying to see the scene in your mind. Um, I think if you're able to do that for this chapter, that would be very helpful, just trying to vividly picture the things that are talked about. So we're going to start in verses 1 through 5 to begin this new covenant timeless invitation that's given, emphasizing the idea of repentance. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you, because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So the first thing is, notice who is being invited in this invitation, in the first verse. It's people who are thirsty and who have no money. If you just kind of think about that, do you, can you think about any times where you might think of Jesus saying similar things or inviting similar people to come and partake of his ministry and the blessings he was promising? One of the first sermons that Luke records in Luke chapter 6, the first words of the sermon, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he proceeds to say, Blessed are the hungry, for they shall be filled. Jesus would also say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In John's gospel with the woman at the well, you remember that he told her that he had water that could satisfy her so abundantly that she would never thirst again. And she said, sir, where may I get this water, right? 
So these are very similar things to the things that Jesus would, would speak about in his ministry as well. So again, it's people who have no money. It's people who are thirsty, people who are deprived and depraved. And I think something to think about with this, does this even seem real? Think about when you're being offered something extravagant or extraordinary and you're hearing like the sales pitch for this extraordinary thing that you know, you know that you want or maybe need, but then in the midst of the sales pitch, it gets to a point where they mention that it doesn't cost anything to get it. And that's usually when like the red flag comes on that this is probably a scam. You know, like, I don't know if you have like a junk email folder where you'll get like 100 emails a day, but pretty much every email is some extraordinary promise of either some great product or some great thing that's going to change your life forever. And lo and behold, it doesn't cost anything. It's just going to be given to you for free, right? Hence, it's filtered away into junk mail, right? So usually things that seem this good are some kind of scam, but what God is offering obviously is legitimate. And the text will proceed to tell us how do we get this thing that somehow costs no money and yet is going to satisfy us more than what we spend our money on. Think about also Ecclesiastes. There was a man who we studied about recently in our Bible study on on Wednesday evenings. There was a man who sought to find meaning in life. He sought to find some kind of fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. And when he didn't find it in one place, he sought to find it in another place. And he had all the resources, all the riches. He had everything he needed to exhaust every option to find fulfillment. And what he did, like so many philosophers have done, is he found that there was nothing but vanity in this life, right? He found that there was nothing that could ultimately give him fulfillment. And he spent money, he spent resources, and ultimately he found that everything is frustratingly vain and empty in trying to find value and fulfillment apart from God. So here is God's ultimate offer in verse 2 in the beginning of verse 3. Notice he says, listen carefully to me. Notice in verse 3, incline your ear and come to me, listen. The price of receiving these things is not money. It's listen, listen, listen. What we'll see later on with some verses that are commonly quoted, um, that are, I think, oftentimes pulled out and misunderstood, It's not just that hearing somehow automatically satisfies. It's the kind of listening that leads us to receive what God is actually offering. Um, Think about how Jesus would oftentimes begin his sermons, especially when he was teaching in parables. He would oftentimes start by saying, listen, and then he would proceed to teach, right? So what God is offering is not something we eat with our mouths, but something we consume with our ears, And when we eat the promise is that we will be abundantly satisfied. And think about this. We'll see this at the end of this chapter as well. But isn't that ultimately what everybody wants and seeks in life? And what I mean by that is an abundant life. That everybody wants in whatever way they can find it, whatever way in their mind they determine that they want it, everybody is seeking some kind of life that in their minds is filled with abundance. And people will sometimes destroy themselves seeking that. I'm sure you've heard of people who, to get rich or to like get wealthy in whatever way that they can, will oftentimes like suffer homelessness for some time to make a go with this new business or to you know make some invention or make some product that people need. 
And sometimes that works, and what will happen is that person will end up oftentimes becoming famous, not just for the wealth that they have, but because of how they attained it by suffering greatly in order to get there. So what God is offering, again, is an abundance that can be received if we'll consume with our ears and listen. And verses 3 through 5, what is actually being offered specifically? Look at verse 3. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. That's ultimately what God is offering, is a covenant. God is offering to bind himself to us eternally. He's offering to become our God. He's offering to become our Father. He's offering to enter into like a a contract, as it were, where God will bind himself to us as a man and a woman are bound together in marriage. And he gets even more specific with this in verses 3 through 5. Notice the person that he says is the emphasis of the nature of this covenant. God is offering a covenant like David's. Turn to Psalm 18. Keep your finger in Isaiah 55. But there's a couple psalms that I want to look at that I think emphasize some of the points that are being made in this invitation. But if you go to Psalm 18, this is one of the few psalms that's, or rather not one of the few, this is the only psalm uh, that's repeated in the Bible twice. In 2 Samuel 22, at the end of David's life, in the narrative of David's life, the psalm is written there. And here, nearly word for word, the psalm is repeated in Psalm 18. Look at the beginning of the psalm, including the heading, which the heading is included just as normal text in Psalm or 2 Samuel 22. Just to emphasize some of the points here with this covenant being a covenant like David's and why this covenant should be appealing and draw us to God. Look at the heading first. It says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song and the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The covenant that God made with David God was always faithfully committed to David with perfect loyalty. Did you know that's what people seek in this life and relationships is simply loyalty? That God is offering to be loyal to us in a way where we will find continuous, faithful, loyal deliverance with him. That when we get into trouble, when we need deliverance, that God is promising that he will always be there. And it's proven. One thing that we'll get into as we look into the text in Isaiah 55 a little further, if God is offering new ways and new thoughts, if he's offering us a new life, and if there's some kind of change that we need to make, there has to be some kind of appeal being made in a way that helps us to see the benefit of what's being offered. I have to see that the value of what I'm receiving is greater than what I'm exchanging for it. So it's kind of like any purchase. If I'm going to be spending money for a product, I have to be convinced that what I'm purchasing is actually worth more than what I'm spending. And what God is doing by appealing to this covenant being like David's, by recognizing what God accomplished with David, recognizing the circumstances that God delivered David from, recognizing the way that God had been merciful to David, had exalted David, had fulfilled his promises with David, by having David as a memorial of God's power and loyalty, 
The appeal is that in seeing that, I'll recognize that God's way and God's purpose is of a greater value than any other way and purpose I can make for myself. Go further in the text in verse 43. This relates to some of the language in Isaiah 55. He mentions that a nation whom you do not know will run to you and a people who you do not know will be loyal to you. Look at Psalm 18, starting in verse 43 through verse 50. Here David says, You have delivered me from the contentions of the peoples. You have placed me as a head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord, and I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. In verse 44, one of the reasons in the text that people are submitting to David is one, because of the safety that's seen in David's reign. And I think Isaiah 55 is is picturing in many different visual ways the different aspects of life that everybody seeks again, but that are found most abundantly and most uh, in, in their greatest reality in God. What David found is that God always provided safety. That with deliverance, God always proved to be a fortress and a refuge. That in all things, God was faithful to the promise that he would bring David to the end of his promise of salvation. So in verse 49 and 50, David concludes the psalm recognizing that more peoples would be drawn to God because of the faithfulness that God had shown to him. Uh, Go back to Isaiah 55, and we'll continue looking through 6 through 13 and come back to some of those points about David as we progress. Um, Look at verses 6 through 11. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So in verse 6, a lot of times this text is used in a way that makes God seem very far away. So for instance, verse 8, a lot of times you'll see this text quoted on its own, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. So the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Usually the idea seems to be that God is so much greater, he's so far away, he's so disconnected from us, he's just unimaginably different and distant. But actually the text is portraying how near God is to those who call upon him, just as David reflected in Psalm 18. In Acts 17 verse 27, Paul the apostle in teaching uh, Gentiles 
would reflect on the fact that God is actually not far away from any of us, but that we just need to grope for him and seek after him. And that's what the text is portraying here. This is not just a, this is not just an exclamation that God's ways are different and distant, but that God is inviting us to receive his ways and to own his ways, to have his ways as our thoughts and to make an exchange where we forsake our ways for his. You see that in verse 7. The offer is that the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. That if we make this exchange, if we'll listen to the Lord, if we'll seek his ways and his thoughts, God will be there to receive us and have compassion on us and abundantly pardon us. And you see, by the way, the New Testament images here, the idea of the wicked forsaking their way, receiving compassion from God, and the abundant pardon that's awaiting those who seek God's forgiveness and redemption. So in verse 8 and 9, it's not that God is so distant that he cannot be found. The idea is that God is seeking to be found by those who are seeking after him. And verse 10 and 11, this is the image that I think pulls this together in an illustration. Rain coming down and snow from the heavens and watering the earth, causing seed to bear fruit and produce, giving sower bread to eat, or giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Think about rain and snow. Um, I'm from Minnesota, and in Minnesota, sometimes it'll rain a lot and it'll shut things down. You won't be able to drive or be able to get to work if it's raining too hard. And then snow uh, obviously can really get in the way. There's a lot of days where because of how much snow and ice is on the ground, just like when it's raining too much, you might not be able to actually do your normal uh, routine or get to work. But who is it who really loves rain and snow? Think about farmers. What do farmers do when there's no rain and no snow? They do nothing, right? And what happens in a land when for an extended period of time, there's no rain and no snow at all. It doesn't just interfere with farmers, but you can't do anything because the land isn't producing anything that gives you life. So we rely on rain and snow coming from above to provide life down on the earth to cause things to sprout upward that come from the sky to give us life where we are. And the promise in verse 11 is that this is what God's word is going to do. It's not that God's ways and his thoughts are so high that they can't be found. It's that God is giving them from the heavens and bringing them to earth so that whoever wants to receive them will receive life from them. And it's not just that the word of God is going to be given arbitrarily, but in verse 11, just as rain accomplishes the purpose it was sent for, God's word will always accomplish the purpose it desires. Just like Jesus would say in his parables, to some people the word of God will make things more difficult. For some people hearing the word of God is hard. But for others who have genuine and humble hearts, for people who are genuinely seeking the Lord, much like the woman at the well that I referenced in John chapter 4 earlier in the lesson, to those with genuine hearts that are seeking new life and recognize that they want something substantial that the world cannot provide for them that only God can give, God's ways and his thoughts will satisfy them as the ground is satisfied that the water, as water comes from clouds. So how does God persuade us to forsake our ways for his? You think about if I offered this to you. 
What if I appeal to you to forsake all your thoughts and all your ways and I'll give you my thoughts and my ways? How would that sound to you? I guarantee you, you probably wouldn't want to take that offer. But who am I, right? What God is offering, much like the covenant made to David, is what God is doing is he's given monuments and memorials of glory. Look at verse 5 again, the end of verse 5. Because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Who is David? Think about David before God called him. And that when Samuel came to uh, the house of Jesse to anoint one of his sons to become king, Jesse didn't even think to bring David out because surely of all the sons of Jesse, one of them was going to be chosen except David. David was a no-name nobody before God called him. But what did God do with David? God made David one of the most famous men who has ever lived. People who hardly know anything about the Bible know the name David and something about what that name David represents. They know something about David like the story of David and Goliath or the way that David had sinned with Bathsheba and yet received forgiveness from God. There are these monuments of God's glory set and established in David's life, again, to persuade us that God's ways and God's thoughts have greater substance and value than any way or thought that you could have of your own. So even though we've invested deeply in our own ways and our own thoughts in a way to feel safe and secure, what God is offering is to bring us out of that sense of security into a real sense of security that we can receive on the basis of his faithful, proven loyalty. So verse 12 and 13. This invitation ends with an image of great transformation and joy. Look at verse 12 and 13. For you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up, and instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. I think this is really interesting. This chapter ends almost like a Disney movie. Like, do you see the scene where you have, like, mountains and hills and trees are, like, clapping their hands and shouting for joy before you? It's a scene in verse 12 that begins with joy and peace being the foundation of this new life that's been founded in the life-giving glory of God's words that have conveyed his thoughts in his ways. Again, isn't that what everybody wants out of life? Isn't everybody in some way seeking joy and peace? Think about why people tire themselves so much to get rich or have a safe and secure life in some way. They're thinking that whatever it is that they're pursuing or sacrificing to get is going to give them peace and joy. And that is what God is offering. That's what Jesus promised through his commandments. So, Think about this scene just a little bit more. It's describing this transformation that's happening. And as this person is being transformed from like a thorn bush into a cypress tree or a nettle into a myrtle, this person's being led forth in this joy and peace as the mountains and the, and the hills break forth into joy and the, and the trees are clapping their hands. Just thinking about this scene, mountains and hills and trees are oftentimes things that get in the way. So think about when people are building like highways and roads, a lot of times what they'll do is they'll blow up 
like whole sides out of hills and mountains or like they'll carve roads into mountains that pass through or they'll dig a tunnel that'll go through. Um, in Georgetown, uh, where I'm living and the Bates live, they recently built like all of these big highways and bridges to try to filter traffic through. And that place by the Bates house used to be lush with trees. I remember when I first visited uh, before they started the work or were in the early parts of the process, I actually got lost. Like I actually couldn't find the road I was looking for because like the trees were so thick and I was very confused because it was nighttime and I just wasn't sure where I was and my GPS didn't really know where I was either. So without my GPS, like I'm totally lost. But instead of these things getting in the way, they're actually aiding this person to be brought closer to this transforming glory that God is promising. Think about like how perspective changes this. If you're standing at the base of a mountain and you're looking up at it, how does it look? A lot of times like mountains that are like real big mountains, they don't look like they can be traversed. But think about when you're looking down on a mountain from an airplane, how different things look when you're seeing it from a totally different perspective. Turn to Psalm 23. I think this is another aspect of how God's covenant is proven with David and how David's perspective, in a sense, was a way of seeing this picture fulfilled in his life. You may even be able to remember the first part of this psalm from memory. Remember David said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. So again, you have all these things that David is saying at the beginning of the psalm to describe this abundance, this peace, and this joy that he has. But remember that David was a man after God's own heart, and David, even in the psalms, would reflect very deeply and actively on the law of God and his written word. And to this person who gives God his ear and who consumes God's word in a way where he's adapting his thoughts and living by his ways, look at verse 4 and 5. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows." What David recognized is that even though there were things that he was enduring where it seemed like he was literally walking in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, and even when he was in the presence of his enemies, like he would describe in Psalm 18, because of the faithfulness of God, because of who God was, because of the nature of the covenant that God had made with him, he recognized that he could still have peace and joy even in the darkest of circumstances in his life because of God's covenant with him. Think about this in the New Testament. In the book of Philippians, Paul wrote that letter to the church when he was in jail, right? And yet one of the strongest points of emphasis in Philippians compared to any other epistle written in the New Testament, Philippians has as its strongest emphasis, rejoice in the Lord always, Yes, again, I say rejoice. And that's where Paul also said that he has learned in every circumstance to be content and that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. You see, these are the things that God is offering. And think about this with evangelism. This is how God changes people. 
This is how God spreads the memorial glory of his covenant and the power of his work is through people who have been genuinely changed and transformed. People who have genuinely sought his thoughts and ways, who have genuinely forsaken their own thoughts and own ways. And it's these people where peace and joy, not from circumstance, but from God's covenant can be made most evident. Turn to Psalm 22 as well. Turn to Psalm 22. This is the psalm that Jesus quotes when he's being crucified on the cross. And yet there's a whole other half of this psalm that really is a surprising shift that I think is much less known. The first half of the psalm is about the suffering of the psalmist. And Jesus, again, quotes this in relation to his suffering on the cross. But starting in verse 22 through verse 31, it begins to just erupt in great praise and glory given to God for his deliverance. And I'm going to read this whole half of this psalm as well. And keep this in mind again with the joy and the peace that God is giving that changes the perspective of trials because of God's loyalty. Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. Turn back to Isaiah 55, verse 13 again. You know, David's life was a life of transformation. David went from a nobody to somebody who, again, was made to be one of the most famous people in the world, but why? Look at the end of verse 13 again. These people, these new covenant people that this invitation is being extended to, these people will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Think about memorials and how protected they tend to be. There's multiple United States memorials, you know, oftentimes military memorials, where how they're kept, their appearance, the station of the military personnel who are there, everything is spotless. It's, it's, it's a focused Um, It's a focused effort to make sure that the memory of whatever is there that's meant to be preserved is is preserved continuously in a way that reflects the seriousness and the importance of whatever happened to begin uh, that memorial. So in verse 13, what is it that God is seeking to preserve in that way? What is God seeking to keep with his faithful covenant? God is seeking to preserve people and display people whose lives begin like thorn bushes. And instead of a thorn bush, those same lives will be transformed into a lush cypress. Instead of nettles, they'll be like lush myrtle trees coming up. 
And it's those abundant lives transformed by the power of God's grace that he will seek by covenant to preserve, to glorify his name. Do you think if that's who we strive to be, that if we are people whose lives to all the people around us, that people can see that we, not of our own merit, but by the mercy of God's faithfulness, have been transformed from being barren and empty and lifeless, seeking vain things to no profit, if people see that we have found real joy and real peace in the Lord, do you think that might make people drawn to the Lord? Do you think that would help people to see that there's glory in seeking God, that there's substance in the hope that we have? And that's the invitation, is that God is not just offering reformed ways, a change of behavior. God is offering new life, an eternal covenant to us when we seek after him in a way where we recognize the glory of what it is he's offering from the proven monuments of his mercy. The monument for us that's most proven now is Christ himself. We recognize that Christ lived a life where even though he was crucified on the cross, because he died as a guilt offering in Isaiah 53, as it was prophesied, we now have hope that our lives can be transformed by the power of his resurrection. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, the appeal of this chapter is that you will hear and heed the invitation. But if you're here and have need of prayers of the saints to be restored to him, if there's sin in your life, if there's anything you need to confess in regard to sin or to make known any need of encouragement, bring it forward now while we stand and sing our invitation song.